Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. I'm back from my latest sojourn in Milton Keynes, the English Open, which is a memorable tournament in the end. Great final, great semi-finals, actually. The lineup you couldn't really have asked for better. And Judd Trump came through 9-8 in a pretty remarkable final. The way the last two frames ended with just one one visit each. We're going to talk more uh, widely about Trump as a player, the way he's developed, the way he's become world number one, the way he's now winning tournaments maybe once he wouldn't have won uh, we're going to do that later on. Michael McMullen uh, with me again. Um, another, you, know, you sort of watched it as a viewer. Uh, what, what's, mm. your, what's your sort of view on 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 uh, on Milton Keynes as a, as a snooker venue, which now appears to be the only venue? Yeah, well, I mean, they were going to be having, before any of this happened, the Champion of Champions was going to be there anyway. So, you know, they obviously thought very well of it as a location. I mean, look, they're doing their best to get these events on, but, you know, I think everyone realises it's getting a little bit, tedious just watching with no crowds at all and you look at two of the biggest names in the game two former world champions playing each other in the final it went the distance it was a really good match you know with all sorts of different sorts of frames in it you know big breaks and some closer ones as well and you know a bit of a narrative developing through the day and just no atmosphere at all and i'm not blaming anyone for that um it's just the way it is at the moment but the fact that basically all the snooker you see now is being played in one room you know, it's a very strange situation, which again is nobody's fault. But you know, if we're going to just have that for for months and months, then uh, it's just going to feel stranger and stranger. Be, you know, absolutely desperate for the crowds to be back. In terms of that, though, and you know, as a as a tournament itself, I mean, it, it made no difference at all. I felt I thought Judd Trump actually adapted to it really well. He spoke early in the week about how incredibly relaxed he was, and you could see that actually in a lot of his shot selections as much as anything else. And it worked for him very, very well indeed. So still a very high-quality tournament. And um, from that point of view, it doesn't make a great deal of difference. But, you know, you, you really do feel now something is, is missing. And you're feeling it more and more as the tournaments go by. J- just a thought, actually, that, that occurred to me. Because obviously, as you know, you were commentating on it. Judd went pretty close to making the highest break of the tournament in the very last frame. So I was trying to think of examples of other tournaments where the highest break was in the last frame of the event. And obviously there was Hendry's 147 in the Liverpool Victoria, but I don't know if you can think of any others. 
Well, oh, I don't know if this is right or not because I'm, it's off the top of my head, but Alex Higgins in the last frame of his 82 final. That, oh, was, yeah. that was his biggest break at the Crucible. Now, whether that was the high break of the tournament, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but it probably would have been close. That, that was a 1-3-5, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 The other one as well, actually, a match Alex Higgins was also involved in and notorious for was the, the World Team Final. Uh, the last year of it being played at Bournemouth, Canada against Northern Ireland. And I don't think there'd been a single century in the whole tournament until the very last frame when Elaine Robidoux made one and, and took the highest break prize, which ironically enough, I think it was a row over the highest break prize that sparked a lot of the row between Alex Higgins <laughs> and Dennis Taylor that day. So um, I've just looked it up, actually. That wasn't the highest break in 82. Willie Thorne made a one four three. Right. So, yeah. Anyway, I yes, just wanted to think about it. If anyone can think of any others, maybe they could, they could mail us in, but they're the only ones I thought of. Well, just what you're saying there about, you know, it becoming repetitive. I think that's true of every sport, though. You know, you look at football at the moment. I mean, these some of these results we're seeing are, are a nonsense, yeah. really, in the, at the top level, you know, 7-2 and all this. It's happening because it, there's no crowd. Um, you know, mm. the, the, it's taken something It's taken something of the tension and the atmosphere, atmosphere clearly out of it. And I think a lot of other sports would, would feel the same way. So the point is, really, at the moment with snooker, it's, it's, we either have these events in a controlled environment like this or we don't have them. And if we don't have them, clearly the sport is going to lose out massively on broadcasting revenue. It's, the players are going to lose out on prize money and basically earning a living, as are the several hundred people who are around that who also rely on the game. So at the moment, I mean, I think they've done about as well as they can. Um, and what we have had is two magnificent finals to start yeah. with. We've had the European Masters, Mark Selby, Martin Gould, now Judge Trump, Neil Robertson as well. So, okay, yeah, I get your point, but I don't really see what can be done to alleviate it. Oh, no, absolutely. I, I agree entirely. I mean, I, I'm only like stating the realities of it as someone who's been you know, watching. I've not been at any of these last few tournaments and didn't even get to the Crucible this year. So absolutely. I mean, give me the choice between that with no atmosphere and no tournament at all. And there's no there's no question whatsoever. It is you know, great that they've managed to get them on and they're going to have a pretty full schedule. And I mean, the prize money for these first two events has been exactly the same as it always would have been. You know, which is fantastic as well. That certainly hasn't happened in other sports. The one thing I would say is, you know, at least with other sports, yes, there's no crowd there, but they are in different venues. And in some sports, they being played in different conditions. Like, for example, the, the golf last weekend, the European Tour, that was in Scotland, uh, you know, where the conditions were really, really tough and very, very cold, as you would expect in Scotland this time of year, whereas some of the other tournaments we've seen have been, been very different to that. Like the Masters in a few weeks in Georgia, that'll still be really hot because... You know, America in November, certainly in the southern parts of it, is, is still really, really, really hot. So, yeah, listen, absolutely. I'm not complaining by any stretch of the imagination as a viewer. Um, it's just something we've got to live with at the moment. But I suppose the point I'm making is when the crowds do eventually come back, which they will at some point, despite what some people uh, try to tell us, I think we'll be really, really grateful for them. And, and the crowds themselves will be so grateful to get the chance to go to snooker again. So, Let's just uh, look forward to that happening. In the meantime, make the best of things. And as you say, two great finals so far. Yeah, and I do think, you know, there's truth in the, the old saying, life's what you make it. You know, you, you, there, there are people, uh, not unusually on social media, who want to run it all down. But the fact is, you know, you, you just concentrate on the snooker because the snooker was excellent last week. Yeah. You know, it's a good tournament. And just try and sort of stay with it, I guess. And And like you say, hopefully things will start to turn around next year. One problem, though, and this is something I wanted to mention before we go on to our main topic about Judd Trump, is that there is clearly a major problem with sponsorship. Um, mm. And it's partly, actually, I think you've got to say snooker's fault because snooker for 
a good 10 years has relied almost exclusively on gambling firms to sponsor tournaments. Now, they're legitimate companies. They're a good fit because obviously there's lots of betting on sport um, and they put a lot of money in. So I'm not having to go at the betting firms. However, it's a little bit like with tobacco. Um, when it goes, it kind of goes at a stroke. And obviously this year, because when the lockdown came, there wasn't any sport for several months, those gambling firms lost a lot of revenue and that has affected their choices on sponsorship. It's affected, you know, the, the money they've got to spend. So some uh, bookies have even gone out of business. Others have withdrawn sponsorship. Bet Fred's still in for the World Championship. Bet Victor are sponsoring six events as part of the European Series. But Coral are out for the Coral Series, so that won't mm. be known as that. That won't be known as that now. Currently, no sponsor for the Masters, which is a concern because that's a huge event. Of course, again, one of the issues there is there's likely to be no live crowd. So you know, the sort of the the, the I mean, the TV is the main reason that they sponsor, but also you know you can do things at the, at the tournament with with the audience as well. Last few years, gate money has helped to fund tournaments where the sponsor hasn't necessarily covered the whole prize fund. But there's currently no live audiences either, so there's no ticket-paying public to, to fall back on. Will Snooker Tour, therefore, are having to fall back on TV rights revenues. Now, thanks to Barry Hearn and his team, they are actually considerable. They're probably the highest they've ever been. Um, but they can't last forever. The World Championship, I was told, the ticket sales for the World Championship at the Crucible is over £2 million. So that's money they didn't, they didn't get this year. They're not guaranteed to get next year. And at some point, you know, although Matchroom is a very robust and profitable organisation, they can't just keep bankrolling everything at the same prize money level forever. Now, as you said, prize money has been held at the moment. We'll see how long that lasts. Um, it's a concern. And of course, because we haven't sort of cultivated other sponsors from other areas, you know, there, there is potential trouble ahead, I think. Yeah, but can I point out there, I think Barry's been very aware of that all along, that he needed to try to cultivate other things, but he just hasn't been able to get them. And I think in a lot of other industries, there's a lot of snobbery against snooker. And the, the whole nature of sponsorship has changed a lot anyway. And uh, I think now companies, big companies anyway, are looking for a more global audience, which snooker, you know, it's a lot more global than it used to be. But there's still parts of the world that are not entirely untouched by it, but where it you know, doesn't have a massive sort of following. So I think that's a bit of an issue for it. And Barry, Barry's been very aware of it, and he has tried to go out and cultivate sponsors in other industries, but it just hasn't happened for him. And I think you'd have to say that perhaps other industries as well anyway, they're probably all cutting their budgets, and a lot of them are going under as well. So it's just the reality of, of things. I mean, you think back to the big recession there was in the UK at the start of the 1990s. There was no sponsor for the UK Championship in 1991 and the prize money absolutely crashed i think it was cut uh, by two-thirds at that time but yeah i mean what what you're saying is definitely true there does come a tipping point where they will have to cut the money and that that's simply the the, the reality that they're going to be faced with and the irony is that not that long ago gate money wasn't a big factor anyway because they didn't charge that much for the tickets they weren't that industrious about selling them but over the last 10 years or so it's become much more a factor and again that's something that barry was very, very aware of when he took over. And I remember him saying that to me in an interview I did with him about a year ago, that as much as anything, just to improve the image of tournaments, he wanted to get the, the venues full again. And then he realised he could make so much money out of it and obviously up the ticket prices. And it's become a huge part now of the budget for tournaments, as you say. So big problems, but all you can do is keep going. What they've also done, which they never used to do, is they get the money in early. So the tickets go yeah. on sale. The tickets go and sell the Crucible the day after the, the previous one, which is a great idea because everyone's already buzzing about it. Oh, I want to go next year. But also you get the money for a year. It's like a loan almost. Mm, yeah. um, 
just just good business. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Look, speaking to people behind the scenes, I think the sort of the attitude I, I've sort of identified is I think they want to get through this season business as usual in as much as we'll put the same events on if we can at the same level. We'll get through it and hope that next season it turns around. Obviously, though, it's literally out of their hands. We, nobody, nobody in sports governance can control what's happening in the wider world. Um, what I'm saying is it can't go on like three years down the line like this. If there's no sponsorship and no gate revenue coming in, we've got serious problems. So let's hope again that things turn around. But we're going to talk about something a bit happier than all of that, because mm. Judd Trump, Judd Trump, despite the whole situation, has once again come to the fore. Now, I'm going to say this right at the start. I thought Neil Robertson was the better player in the match in the final. Um, and I don't think he did anything wrong, really. He got a kick to go 8-6 up. Um, in the last in the last but one frame, he made a century off Trump's break-off shot. Um, and then in the decider, he broke off, left to long red, and Judd Trump made a century. So, you know, what, what are you supposed to do? However, and that's not dissing Judd Trump, it's actually a compliment to him that he still won. It's a match that maybe, well, I would say a few years ago, he wouldn't have got to the final. I mean, he was 3-1 mm. down. 3-1 down the first three rounds. Michael Holt, in particular, I think, would feel he should have beaten him. Even against Higgins, you know, Higgins made the running there. He potentially, you know, could have exploited a few weaknesses, didn't. Trump just dug in. First, highest break of the first session of the final, only 59, but has become such a tough player. And I remember, um, I used to live in Bristol when I worked for the WPBSA. So Judd Trump at that time would have been eight or nine uh, years of age. And he was in, we had a local paper every Thursday, um, which was the, you know, the, the local news. And Every week he was there prominently. He'd won some tournament. This was the new star of snooker from Bristol. Um, and you could tell then, you know, it wasn't just a talented youngster. He was winning everything. He was winning like proper events with adults in. Um, there was something very special about him. He had a good grounding, which is what you need. And this is, we spoke before about players from outside the UK don't necessarily have this. He had a club to play in, the Canesham Snooker Centre. There was a guy there, Derek Curnow who should be remembered. He was a bit like Malcolm Thorne. He was very much about the grassroots. He helped to show Trump the ropes early on. He had a father, of course, Steve, prepared to drive him around Britain every weekend. He was a massive snooker fan himself, determined to support his son's career. He had the building blocks, but clearly he also had something else. It wasn't just a love of snooker and a willingness to practice. He was blessed with something, and whatever that something is, he made the most of it. Yeah, and I, I was only thinking uh, during the tournament, with the obvious exception of O'Sullivan, I've never seen a snooker player to whom the game seems to come so easily. He just has that air about him. I've only ever seen that in O'Sullivan. Even Jimmy didn't have it. You know, even Hendry didn't have it. You know, you felt you got a sense of how hard Hendry had to work at the game, even though he was obviously unbelievably talented. But, you know, there were a lot of guys around at that time when so many kids, you know, were playing snooker in Britain. We were hearing a lot of names and a lot of them just didn't get through. But as you say, Trump, even from that age, looked so special. Wasn't there that story about him beating Mike Hallett in a final at Pontons and he went and celebrated on the swings? Well, yeah, he was about twelve or something. Well, it was the, it was he was thirteen. It was the it was right. the big big spring open, which was obviously open to pros and amateurs. And I presume he would be getting some sort of start, but you know, maybe twenty four. I don't know start per frame. Yeah, he beat Mike. I think four one, four two, something like that. And the prize was a bottle of champagne, which obviously, well, he got <laughs> he got he got money, but he got a bottle of champagne. Obviously, he couldn't do anything with that for a few years. But yeah, he, he just went out on the swings. And, and that was kind of, it was kind of, um, it reminded you he was still a boy. You know, he was actually still a kid. Um, what, what, Mike, Mike accused him of uh, behaving childishly during the match. Well, he was a child. I mean, <laughs> yes. Yes. so what else was going to happen? I agree with you, though. I do think Robertson was the better player. And 
you know, when he got that run going at the uh, start of the evening session, you thought, well, you know, th this looks very good from now. He's really taking control. And there were times during the match when Trump actually wasn't playing that great. So it, it did look like he was very much on top during it. And uh, I think Robertson at the end didn't look overly disappointed. His demeanour suggested to me that he knew he had given it all he could and he'd just been beaten by someone who well, you know, well. is at least the second best player in the world and I would say still the best. Well, he didn't do anything wrong. That's why there was yeah. no... You couldn't say there was any moment that he actually threw it away. That The ready missed rate six was a bad contact. I'm, I'm convinced of that. Sure, I agree, um, yeah. And, you know, he had one shot in the decider. I mean, the, the, the old cliche, all you're looking for is a chance. Well, he broke off. Um, but let's let's look at Trump's sort of development because it wasn't necessarily as smooth as people might sort of think. Um, very talented junior. And he, he came to a couple of tournaments here and there as a kid because he was um, identified as being someone to watch. Clearly very introverted, which in snooker is a massive advantage because you need to be to, to play it. And all the great champions basically have been. Uh, came, could have swayed through the amateur ranks, winning all sorts of things. But the pro ranks, they're a big step up. It's very different. You're coming up against the old stages, the gnarled veterans, as Phil Yates would call them, mm. um, who basically will do everything to mess you about, nail you to the bolt cushion, try and stop you playing. And I think... A lot of talented players, when they turn pro, they think it's going to actually, almost subconsciously, it's just going to be easy. I can play great. I'm going to roll these guys over. It doesn't happen. You know, there's some experienced players there. He found it difficult at first, um, had a, got to the crucible at 17, had a few setbacks after that. But then actually, it didn't take that long. He won the Championship League in 2009 against top players. So there were all the other players in that were, were big names. And that really, I think, was the start of it. Obviously, China Open 2011, run to the World Final. And then he was kind of off and running. It was very hard in the early years of his professional career for any new player to break through. Because if you remember the tiered qualifying structure there was at that time, yeah. if you were starting out, you had to win what felt like a never-ending succession of matches just to get the chance to play at the venue and take on the top players. Now, obviously, then he got his breakthrough. As you say, he won the China Open. He got to the World Final. Probably should have won the World Final, really, as far back as 2011. Then he was in the top 16. The days of qualifiers were over for him. And, of course, the flat draw came in a couple of years later anyway. Uh, but I think, obviously, that was a massive turning point for him. It was the same, I think, with Sean Murphy when he, you know, so remarkably won the World Championship 15 years ago. He was out of that qualifying quagmire. And so, unlike all the other talented and promising youngsters coming through, he could skip that and go straight to the main venues where he really thrived. And we knew with Trump in 2011 when we saw him, you know, in Beijing and in Sheffield, he really was a player for big occasions, big arenas, big atmospheres, and he absolutely thrived on it. And he's kicked on since. Even then, it's not been constant, straightforward progression for him up to the point where he became world champion, because probably around about 2014, I think he went down as far as about number seven in the world, uh, having been, a lot of people forget this, number one. Only a couple of years before that, he had a brief spell at the top of the rankings. So he's had his ups and downs. Uh, but what's happened to him now over the last two years, I mean, just off the top of my head, I think that's 11 titles now, including 10 ranking events uh, since he started that run in Belfast, not even two years ago now. I mean, has anyone ever won that many ranking events in a two-year period, even Hendry in his prime? Off the top of my head, I'm, I'm not sure he has. So to me, he's the closest we've seen to that Hendry-esque domination since then. I know Selby had his time, O'Sullivan has had his periods as well, but I can't remember anyone being that good so consistently over a two-year period uh, since the Hendry era. And it's not just been like the World Final where he just pummeled Higgins with a succession of big breaks. He's won a lot of these finals in very different ways. And as we say, the final on Sunday at the English Open 
was quite different to that, and he did have to dig in and show a lot of character. Yeah, to be fair to Hendry, um, in his prime, he didn't have as many tournaments. There weren't as many tournaments, yeah. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i convinced he would have won, you know, probably 60, 70 ranking events in his career, had, had, had there been as many, you know, now as there were, then as there are now. But anyway, uh, I think a couple of things that made a big difference to Trump. One, he moved to Essex, um, established himself there. Apart from anything else, it gave him independence in his life. You know, he wasn't just relying on his parents anymore. He was sort of standing on his own two feet. Um, Clearly as well, and it's almost become a bit of a cliche to talk about his brother, but clearly that tie-up, having Jack with him at tournaments, made a big difference. Uh, people will remember the, the early days after the World Championship, all the talk of naughty snooker, which never really meant anything other than he just took on sort of flare shots. That's, yeah. all gone, that's all gone away now. What he's worked on doing is becoming an all-round player. As you say, finding different ways to win. He can still pop the unbelievable balls, and he did in that final at times. Um, but he's a very, very clever safety player now. Ronnie O'Sullivan actually said this right at the start of the match before a ball had been struck. He said, if you watch the safety, Judd Trump will put Robertson in more trouble than Robertson will put Trump in. And that, that, mm. actually, did, that actually did sort of bear out during the match. Um, in terms of Jack, uh, you know, obviously he's his brother. They used to share a bedroom. You know, they're as close as you can be. And he can say anything to him that maybe other people would be reticent about saying to him because they'd fear that they wouldn't, you know, he'd get rid of them or whatever from the scene. And it's clearly worked really well. Of course, what he's having to do now is, is adjust to not having Jack with him because players aren't allowed guests. So actually that routine has slightly been broken, but the building blocks are there. Um, and yeah, it all started, I mean, it, that 2018 uh, Northern Ireland Open, you know, he hadn't won a tournament for a year. And people mm. were, as, as people do, people were starting to say, well, he's not the real deal, blah, blah, blah. Well, clearly that's been answered. Masters, world title, world number one, all those ranking events. Quite incredible. And clearly, as, as Hendry will tell you, winning is fun. And once you get that winning formula, you just want to win as much as possible. Judge Trump is clearly not someone who would just settle for, you know, a couple of tournaments a year, you know, a few hundred grand a year. Thank you very much. He is determined to win everything. And he's determined to do what, of course, we don't see, which is put the work in, which he's also done. It's not all about natural talent. It's about putting the work in. Um, and I have to say this as well. I think I thought as world champion, the year he spent as world champion, off the table, he represented the sport really well. He said all the right things. He can represent snooker in the social media age as well. It's not just newspapers. It's all Instagram and all the rest of all that stuff. Um, so, you know, a, star, a, a genuine star, which, of course, is what any sport needs. Yeah, I mean, you talk about there the fact that winning is fun. I really got the sense when he beat O'Sullivan in that final in Belfast. And as you know, it's a great venue there and it gets a really good atmosphere, particularly when it's full as it was for that final. He really seemed to relish that. And I just got a sense often that he thought, OK, I really like this. I love this, you know, beaten, you know, one of the greatest players of all time and a very, you know, entertaining final in front of a big crowd here. It really seemed to give him the taste for it. And around that same time as well, he made one or two comments that suggested to me that, he knew maybe that not quite the time was running out, but that maybe he needed to get on with things if he was going to really fulfil his potential. He was heading towards 30. He maybe felt he hadn't approached things in the right way uh, up until then in his career, and maybe he would have achieved more if he had done. So he decided to start approaching them in the right way. And I do agree with you, obviously having someone with him on the circuit. I mean, you think about it. Which player 
has the best attitude at tournaments over the years? I would say it's Mark Williams because it never seems to get bogged down in the event or get stressed out about it all. He always seems to be in you know very good frame of mind going into his matches. Now, Mark always seems to travel with someone. He seems to have a whole endless supply of people from Wales who come up with him if his wife isn't there with him, which she obviously rarely is nowadays because they've got the kids and everything. But he always seems to have someone with him at a tournament and it's served him really well over the years. So I think having someone with you definitely has made a, a huge difference. Again, he proved at the English Open he can he can do it when he's there on his own as well. And here's the other thing. Here's the other thing that Trump shares with Hendry. He wants to win every tournament he plays in. He doesn't. He would not necessarily rank them. Obviously, everyone knows the World Championship is the number one. We know that. But Trump has had the same attitude in all these tournaments. He hasn't taken anyone for granted. He hasn't been sort of looking at the exit door when things have been going badly. And it's interesting. Last season, you know, he won six ranking titles, which is a record. He didn't win, uh, let's invoke the Triple Crown here, he didn't win any of those three. But I was thinking about this. If you look at the people who did win them, they otherwise didn't actually, they were kind of outliers last season. They didn't actually do anything else. Ding Jun-Wee won the UK Championship, didn't threaten to win anything else. Stuart Bingham won the Masters, didn't threaten to win anything else. Ronnie O'Sullivan won the World Championship. He had one in Shanghai, which is a big event, don't get me wrong, but didn't really threaten to win any ranking tournaments. He got to the final, lost to Trump in Belfast. That was about it. So... For all the sort of fuss that's made about those three events, actually, the, the three people who won them, they just came good in those events. In terms of consistency, Trump was the ap- absolute player of the season by, by a country mile. Stephen Henry once said, and this is definitely the case, that he actually put more store by being world number one mm-hmm. than by being world champion. It seems an incredible thing to say. Now, it wasn't long after he had lost to Steve James in the 1991 championship, but was still number one. So that may have had something to do with it. Now, I don't think anyone would say it now. I think, you know, the world championship probably is the ultimate and being number one probably is held in slightly lower regard maybe than it would have been at that time. But it's an interesting perspective and it underlines what you're saying. And, you know, I spoke there about Trump and how his attitude has improved. And I think, you know, that is definitely true. But sometimes we can almost fall into talking about this and give the impression that Trump was messing around for a number of years. I mean, he wasn't. I mean, he was still a very successful player, even before he had all this uh, wonderful run that he's had over the last couple of years. I remember a couple of quotes from other players. Neil Robertson, actually, himself said uh, in praise of Trump some years ago, when Robertson himself was way ahead of Trump in terms of achievements, he said, the thing about Judd is he doesn't treat the PTCs like a stag weekend and then complain (laughs) about expenses. I think a lot of players at that time with the PTC events you know, weren't showing the dedication and then complained about how much it cost them. Trump took a very different attitude to that. So that suggested there was a professionalism there. And the other quote I remember actually comes from uh, Fergal O'Brien, not least because I think there's some unwritten rule somewhere that we have to mention Fergal in every podcast. But I remember doing it a few years ago. He was saying how he gets a hard time about taking a long time over his shots. And, you know, if Fergal takes a minute and a half over a shot, people are saying, oh, for God's sake. But, and these were Fergal's words, and you know how sarcastic he can be. He said that um, if Judd does something like that, people are praising his new maturity. And that was an expression <laughs> we, we heard about Judd actually a lot of times over the years, uh, that people were saying, oh, yeah, he's, he's really you know, got his focus now, and you know, he's a much more professional approach to it now. He's much more of a threat to the big players. And he was becoming that more and more. It didn't just happen overnight. It's been a sort of gradual process. Uh, that he has shown perhaps a bit more dedication, a bit more professionalism, but one or two times that perhaps he did let himself down at the Crucible when he lost to Rory McLeod uh, against George Carrington in Northern Ireland around the same time. So he's tightened up on all of that. You don't see any lack of professionalism or focus from him at all now, but it didn't all just happen overnight. It's been a long-term process for him. 
I guess the, the the challenge for him now, obviously, is is to keep it going. But if and the will, I guess there must inevitably be some slump at some point. It's how he copes with that, I guess. But at the moment, he doesn't need to think about that. He, I think he would be very happy to have won last weekend um, without necessarily playing his best snooker. That in itself is a skill. Um, bodes well for the rest of the campaign. Also, he's won a tournament early in the year, so you know he's not sort of the, the, no one's sort of pointed the finger. Oh, his form's gone. Um, I, I just think he's going to carry on, you know, challenging. The other kind of advantage he's got, which Ronnie also has, of course, is that, you know, you say every, all the snooker we see is in that in that one room. Of course, he's the he's always on that table now. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that's that's an advantage you earn. There was there was a sort of I, I think I can say this there was a sort of discussion, let's put it that way, going on on the Thursday, which is the two round day, about what would happen if Trump and O'Sullivan won in the afternoon. Would they be on again at night? Would that actually be overkill? Should we see, for example, John Higgins, Ding Jun Wee was a good match to put on. Mm. There were lots of other matches they could have put on. Um, it was slightly sold when Ronnie lost to Matthew Stevens, which mm. meant obviously he was out of the picture. They did put Trump on. Um, and there was also a problem because the, the, the format is weirdly done before the event starts. So actually the certain players have to play certain times. Um, but it's like, you know, we used the example of, of tennis, you know, Fedro, Nadal, Djokovic, Serena Williams, they're going to play on centre court. They're not going to play on court four because they've earned the right to. Um, Ronnie's world champion, Trump's world number one, and they're also very popular. I think that is one issue, actually, though, with these multi, multi-table multi tournaments. You can, if you're not careful, end up just seeing the same people. And, of course, we've seen, we've seen events where, you know, you get to the semis and suddenly there's Kyron Wilson we, we haven't seen all week, or there's someone who hasn't been on the main table, which maybe is, well, a bit unfortunate. It was taken to extremes, actually, about 20 years ago, because we had a big four at the time, Henry, Williams, and O'Sullivan, and Higgins, three of whom actually are still top players now. And there was a feeling among television producers and executives and whoever that you just had to just keep showing those players because they were so clearly far superior to everybody else and with the biggest names. They were actually playing the rounds out of sequence so that they could show them. So you'd have, the, say, the second round would already be starting, but they would have deliberately held back the first round matches of a couple of those players just so they could get them on, on the TV. So it can go to extremes. I, I did... I, I, I do think that was something that, you know, we've maybe lost a little bit from a lot of the events that, as you say, it, it's always great following a player's progress through the tournament. You think of the Grand Prix, for example, that's coming up in December. You've got 32 players and, OK, I know there's two tables and there's one of them you can't see, but you generally can follow a player's progress through the event, whereas sometimes, as you say, with these tournaments, take, for example, Erzenbacher when he got to the semis uh, of one of the Home Nations events. I think it was the English, wasn't it? A couple of years ago. And we hadn't seen him at all until he got to the semis. So uh, that is a bit of an issue. But I guess at the moment, particularly, you can't really cut the fields because it's very difficult to stage qualifiers and then the main event. You've got to have everyone sort of playing it all uh, all in together. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the challenges going forward, actually, is and it, it, television, television can't do it because it would just cost too much. But there must be a, a better way of actually linking up all the tables. And I mean, in China, they actually have a dedicated webcam on every table. That's an exclusive yeah. deal. That's an exclusive deal in China. There are people, clever people who can tap into it in other places, but in, in sort of strict legal terms, it's only available in China. Um, they've got this matchroom live platform now, whether it could, could work on there or some, some way of actually, so a viewer can affect, be, effectively become their own editor and move around the matches and watch what you want rather than be dictated to. That maybe is, is something to think about years down the line. Just finally then on Judd Trump, I'm going to ask you two questions that though are basically A, impossible to answer really, and B, we will not know the answers for another maybe 20 years. But right. hopefully if we're spared, we can come back and answer them. Um, 
How, number one, how many ranking titles will he end up winning? Well, of course, I, I know what you're like. I know you'll write these down in 20 years <laughs> from today. You know, you'll get me on here. Podcasts probably won't exist anymore by then. But <laughs> how many ranking titles will he win in his whole career? Yeah, now we're assu- obviously we're assuming that essentially the circuit will continue as it is now. We don't know. Yeah. Will, but let's just say things are basically going to be the same for the next 10 years. Yeah, okay. Well, let's say in the next 10 years, then, if you have the same number of events, how many is he on at the moment? 18. Uh, he's on 18 now, yeah, after that. Okay, well, you're going to have to make a guess as well. See, you've got to remember as well, he's only 31. I yeah. mean, that's actually, nowadays, really young in snooker terms. Steve Davis won his last world title at 32. Stephen Hendry won his last at 30. But now it's no age at all. So you could expect him to maybe be a top player throughout at least the next 10 years. I'm going to say he's on 18 at the moment. Let me put it like this. Ronnie's total at the moment is 37. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. What I'll say is I think he'll overtake that. How about we say that? Okay. Although, of course, Ronnie could win more himself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I think that the target that's there at the moment, I would think the way he's going and, and the fact that he's, you know, done it for two years now, you know, so consistently. I think uh, I'd be a little bit surprised if he didn't get to about 40. What about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm similar. I think he would possibly sort of double what he's on now, you know, around that ballpark, mid-30s to 40. Like I say, we don't know, obviously, how many tournaments there are going to be and, and all the rest of it. But the, put it this way, there's no reason why there should be any let-up in the coming years to, to how he's playing now. And clearly, also, he's someone nobody wants to play. He's just dangerous um, and can win in different ways. The second question is, how many world championships will he win? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you say there's no reason why there should be any let-up. Uh, I would actually see a reason why he could actually start winning arguably even more consistently because so many of the top players now are getting to an age where can they maintain their standard for much longer? And are there that many players of Trump's sort of age who are going to be capable of challenging him and stopping him winning tournaments? I would say very, very few. So in terms of world titles, I'd be very surprised if he ends up as a one-time world champion. Um I, I would say either three or four. I'm going to say four. Yeah, I mean, I think at least three. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't like it when people say, oh, he'll be a 10 time. I mean, you know, come on. Uh, yeah. It's hard to win that tournament. And if you've won it once, mm. it's an achievement. Yeah. I do think, though, yeah, I think I could definitely see him win it again. And to be, to be honest, like three world titles is amazing. Um, if you can win more than that, then that's absolute legend status. But yeah, the point is that, you know, the, the time is now for Trump and the next 10 years, as you say, with the, uh, the fact that a lot of the other top players are aging and there are fewer young players coming through, he's in the perfect position around the age of 30 to clean up. So we will follow his progress with great interest. I, I think Judd Trump is great for snooker and I look forward to seeing him play much more in the future. Now then, um, we've just got a couple of emails to conclude with. Um, I'm going to say... Clearly an Irish chap. Donal or Donal? I think he's written before and I asked you the same thing. I've heard this before, yeah. Yeah. It's it's definitely Donal. Donal, okay. Uh, Greetings, podcasters. Of course, it was our fifth anniversary last week. You may Mm. have... uh, you may have seen the, the special programming on BBC Four. Um, congratulations to Dave, Phil, Michael, and any other of Dave's trusty psychics I may have overlooked on reaching your fifth anniversary. I really enjoyed all the episodes, except perhaps the one that was recorded in a bowling alley with pop music blaring in the background. Well, yes, that was that was one of the that was in Barnsley with David Grace, and uh, unfortunately there were no other rooms to go in. And, and as we sat down, 
I should have I should have maybe spotted it coming, but uh, they decided to start all the music anyway. Uh, anyway, he says enough of my snarky comments. Oh, believe me, they're welcome here. <laughs> mm. you, should, you should hear what we say before we start recording. <laughs> and after uh, we finish. Yeah, you asked on the anniversary episode. Now this is, he this is I should have got this because this is an obvious answer actually. He says you asked on the anniversary episode who is the best golfer among the snooker pros. Surely the answer must be Sean Murphy. Ah, uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Who has played to a scratch handicap on occasions. There's a video on YouTube of him playing nine holes, which he completes with a very impressive score of two under par. In 2009, Sean, Sean entered the Open by playing a qualifying round at Bowtray Golf Club in Ireland. As far as I know, any amateur with a scratch handicap or better can enter the qualifiers, but unfortunately, Sean didn't make it through the tournament proper, which was played at Port Rush. If memory serves, he had a bit of a nightmare, carding a score somewhere in the mid-80s, although if I managed such a score on a championship course, I'd be doing cartwheels all the way to the 19th hole. Congratulations again on reaching this milestone and for crushing the table-talk imposters beneath your jackboot. <laughs> Oh, that's, that's the best quote of, yeah. of of the whole five years. Here's to another five years of imaginary torments on six-foot tables. Well, yes, Table Talk was the World Snooker podcast, which apparently is being reimagined, I was told. So we'll see We'll see what they imagine for that. Um, Tony Finnegan writes, now this is a bit of an old sore. I think we have talked about this before, but he says, I just wanted to inquire about the current snooker dress code. Not wanting to do away with tradition too much. But surely bow ties and neckties should be consigned to history. I realise we don't want to start on the slippery slope where players are turning up for tournaments in flip-flops and cut-off jeans, and that some tournaments, namely the shootout, has a more relaxed dress code. I see the players constantly fiddling with their bow ties and neckties as they can get in the way of a shot. And I remember Steve Davis saying he was fed up of looking like a dinner waiter, and Steve Maguire doesn't wear one for medical reasons. The current dress code for the home nations is more relaxed but still smart, open shirt and tailored trousers. Keeping the waistcoat, I think, is important, but the bow ties and neckties... Surely they have to go. I would love to know yours and Michael's thoughts on this. And do the players have a vote or say on the dress code, or are they simply told what to wear by the governing body and are fined if they don't? Well, they are told what to do. I mean, you're right. It's been a bit more relaxed in recent years. Different tournaments have different rules. But, for example, last week, you had to wear a black shirt and black trousers. Now, there was one player who shall remain nameless who turned up with a pair of grey trousers. And basically, there wasn't time for him to go and buy a new pair. So he had to borrow Martin Clark's trousers. Martin Clark former top 16 player, now tournament director, was about the same height, which is maybe a clue as to who it was, and about the same... I think their waist sizes were slightly different because the trousers didn't look great on him. But anyway, he wore them, and that's the only way he could actually get to play. In terms of um, the overall dress code, they have tinkered with it over the years. Here's the thing. I remember someone saying to me, and it's something I hadn't considered, um, the waistcoats, okay, they may look a bit anachronistic, a bit old-fashioned, but... If you go to like a junior tournament, all the young kids are wearing them because they've seen their their heroes on TV wear them, and they want to look like the people on TV, and they want to dress up smart. Um, I think if you if you kept the waistcoats and got rid of the ties, the problem is they did try that at one point, and it just looks like people have forgotten to put the ties on. It looks a bit kind of I don't know slovenly if I can use that word. Um, bottom line is I think we've discussed this before. I don't I don't think it's a big issue. It's not it's not something that's going to kind of revolutionised snooker one way or the other. I quite like the players looking smart. It ties into the sort of etiquette of the game, maybe. Um, I thought the player, I thought last week was quite good with the shirts. The only thing is, and even Neil Robertson, it happened to him, those shirts can come untucked pretty pretty easily. And then it does look a bit scruffy. But overall, I would, I would rather keep it smart than go too much down the line of do what you like. Yeah, I mean, I, I do agree with you. I like the look for the Home Nations. They announced that before the English Open last year. 
uh, that they were going to switch to that different dress code. And I actually forgot about it. It was only about the Wednesday. I was there actually in Crawley and it dawned on me, oh yeah, they were in different clothes. It literally hadn't registered with me during the, the first few days that they weren't wearing them. And yeah, I agree with what you're saying about, you know, young players are actually quite happy to, to dress like that and, and like wearing those clothes. And at the same time, it does maybe feel a bit old fashioned. Does it put people off the game? I very much doubt it. And I remember Phil saying years ago when they started tinkering with it around 2001, he said, yeah, you can really imagine someone turning on the TV and saying, oh, there's some snooker. Don't think I'll watch that. Oh, wait a minute. One of the players is wearing an orange shirt and no tie. I'll settle in for a few hours. So, uh, which I thought just about summed it up. There's, there's been too much talk about this over the years. I mean, we all remember that ridiculous morning 20 years ago. Um, it was one of the mornings there was no play uh, during the World Championship and we were invited to a restaurant, which they had hired out at God knows what cost. And they unveiled Snooker's boy band, as they were mm. calling them. I mean, what does that even mean? And they were wearing, you know, expensive clothes uh, that they've been given. And, and the point about it was, it, it wasn't as if this was what the players were going to be wearing. They were still going to be wearing the, the bow ties and the waistcoats in their matches. So so what were these new clothes for? Now, they will be a real snooker trivia question. And I don't think I could get it right. Could anyone name the six players who were billed as snooker's boy band? And we were told that this was going to change the game. And I remember one world snooker official saying, well, who earned more money last year? Mark Williams or Ronan Keating? <laughs> like, what does that even mean? You know. So I think there's been way too much talk about it over the years. I do see the point that it maybe is a little bit old-fashioned now and perhaps needs to be have a bit of a rethink from that point of view. But the point you make is right. You look at young players now, they love the idea of getting their waistcoat and their bow tie because it's what they've grown up watching people doing on television. It's uh, It's been a big issue, actually, in golf over the last few weeks because uh, Tyrrell Hatton, uh, who's you know, probably England's best golfer at the moment, um, he won the PGA Championship at Wentworth, but he was wearing a hoodie all weekend. There's been yeah. a lot of talk about it there at the moment. Golf, of course, has much more scope for different types of clothes. But like I say, it, it, there's, there's been way too much talk about it. I think it's a peripheral issue, and it doesn't bother me, actually, one way or the other, unless, as you say, they went too far down the road and players just looked, you know, scruffy and undignified or whatever. But I think we're a long way from even considering that. Also, I think, and I've, I've said this before as well, I think some people tend to look good in clothes generally, whatever they're wearing. Like Ronnie would look good, I think, whatever he wore. And some people, because of body shape or whatever, kind of don't. And But I think you have more chance if it's formal. Anyone who puts a suit on looks half decent, I think. Uh, but going back to the young players of young players of extinction, or whatever they were called. Um, yeah. So I, you're saying no one can remember them. I think it was Maguire. Uh, Murphy. Carter. Murphy, Ryan Day. Yeah, Ian Priest. Ian Priest and Alan Burnett. Alan Burnett, that's <laughs> it. We did it. Wow. Wow. The, the, Alan Burnett, the sixth Beatle. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, well, well, I've got to say as well, right, the, the other thing, I won't say who it was, but there was someone who was working for WPBSA, as it was at the time, who just clearly didn't know very much about the game at all. Surely not. Surely not. Yeah, I know, yeah. But I remember an interview being done uh, as part of that whole launch on the BBC, and it was... One of the replies that, that was given to a question, it was something to do with, you know, overseas expansion. And the answer was, so our plan is that within five years, we'll have eight overseas players in the top 32 and three in the top 16. That's not a plan. That's just something you, you, you'd like to ideally happen. That's like me saying my, my plan is to win the lottery. I mean, I, OK, but how are you actually going to make it happen? And it wasn't going to happen by getting Ian Priest, you know, dressed up in a fancy suit and going to a restaurant in Sheffield. So. It may have yeah. been a di it may have been a different person, but similarly sort of um, annoying who worked there. She, uh, this person was a sort of marketing 
type who mm. told me who told me it was a she she said uh, see the problem with snooker is at the moment it's at the bottom of the j curve yeah it is i know who you're talking about and it was the same person no know. no jury would have convicted me if i'd have gone out on a shooting spree i'm sorry but come on don't well, that, don't, that's, don't that, say things like that well well as, as we've gone this far i might as well add this in that same person did not know what the term round robin meant. <laughs> and, 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 you know, this is someone who had one of the top jobs in a global sporting organisation. Well, that, that is something that, that has changed. I mean, we always talk about Barry, but Barry has a team that's mainly sort of filtered through matchroom. They all work in the big... Well, he's, he's old, his old house, actually. You've, you've been there, I know. Yeah, uh, it's an amazing place. And he, he always employs a certain sort of person. And the thing about... If you're trying to change the image of snooker, I don't think the dress code is the way forward. I think it is ultimately through media, through social media, through through the way the sport uh, is presented, I guess. And th- that's a continuing challenge. They, they've got various, I think, good ideas, some maybe not so good, but at least they've got ideas. Um, but actually, the dress code, it's not actually something I think people are that bothered about, really. Um, anyway, thank you for the email, though, Tony, and uh, I'm sure people will have their own ideas. Final email this week is from Andrew McBurney. I just listened to the Martin Gould episode. What an amazingly humble, articulate, genuine, thoughtful guy. He came over with huge integrity, a real gentleman, and inspirational listen. Just a thought for some future episodes. Why not interview some celebrities, people in the public eye, not from the snooker world, but who love and follow the game? For example, from the entertainment world, I know Stephen Fry, Alistair McGowan, and Josh Widdicombe are fans. And from politics, I believe Ed Miliband, and also one of the current Tory cabinet, sorry, I forget which one, who I heard say on a recent episode of Question Time goes to Sheffield every year. That may be Connor Byrne. Who is yeah, not... it is. He's been a few times, yeah. Not, not in the cabinet, but quite, quite, um, quite a heavyweight, I think. Quite uh, senior. I think he knew Thatcher, but anyway, uh, yeah. who knows? He knew, Who knows? Maybe even Damien Hurst or Ronnie Wood, two of the most famous followers of snooker. Although in their case, due to a friendship with a particular player, of course, it would be nice to get a different perspective on the game and a sense of why snooker appeals to a diverse array of well-known people. Some of them might be willing to come on for nothing <laughs> in return for a bit of publicity or plug for a current project or product. Uh, cheers and thanks for continuing to provide enjoyable and insightful listen each episode. Well, there's nothing wrong with that idea, Andrew. The problem, obviously, is getting hold of people. Um, mm. Celebrities tend to be busy, and also, they, they you have to go through PRs who I, I suspect would regard this podcast as not necessarily, you know, it's not the Graham Norton show, is it? Let's be honest. Um, so, if Stephen Fry had a book out, then you know he may more likely go on Graham Norton show than come on here. Of course, Ed Miliband, we're great pals with. Um, well, slight exaggeration, <laughs> but yeah. He we came had a, to the Masters final, yeah. and I, I remember that, 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 that fantastic moment when um, you and me and him, you know, the man who could have been Prime Minister yeah. at, by that stage if things had worked out slightly different. And I was going up to the bar, but it just felt quite surreal saying, are you all right for a drink, Ed? You know, t- <laughs> talking to someone who I'd seen taking lumps out of David Cameron across yeah. the dispatch box for all those years. I think it's actually a really good idea. I mean, as, as I'm sure you know, Dave, one of my pet hates is celebrities being wheeled out to talk about things they know nothing about. But the people being mentioned there wouldn't fall into that category. Stephen Fry, I mean, that, that would be unbelievable uh, to, to get him on because he really is a genuine fan of the game. I sat next to him uh, at the World Final a couple of years ago and he was absolutely loving it and making little comments, all of which were well informed. And Connor Burns, he was at the final in 2011 that we referred to earlier, the one between Higgins and Trump. And again, I was having a drink with him at the party afterwards, and he was telling me he had actually been on the phone to Thatcher that night talking about the final. <laughs> I mean, this, you know, for someone who grew up in the 80s, this was an incredible conversation to be having. Of course, that, was, that would have been the second last world final that, uh, that she was even alive for. But listen, you know, if there's a call to have big celebrities on here, you know, you've got either me or Phil pretty much every week. It doesn't get any bigger than that. So... Not sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Stephen Fry. 
Very true, yeah. Well, uh, it's listen. If if any celeb, if Ed Miliband is listening, then uh, feel free to come on. Ed will will renew our our friendship. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's something. Listen, it's something to think about. But to be honest, like, I think I think what people and we've had some kind emails from people this year. You know, through the lockdown period, I think what people actually come to the podcast for is all the niche chat rather than you know you can always oh, find a, yeah. you can always you can always find a celebrity being interviewed somewhere. Just put the telly on or the radio on. Um, they're not going to be talking about the Mercantile Classic, are they? Let's be honest. Um, we will. So we, exactly. That's, that's, our, that's our promise to you. We will talk about old stuff no one else is interested in. Um, and I think on that note, uh, we should wrap up. Um, uh, can I just make it yeah. just, just a couple of things I'd, I'd like to raise, actually, that, that I think uh, merit a mention. One is Tep Chai on new, because this has gone largely unnoticed. In He's the a top 16 team, yeah. player. Yeah. yeah. And I checked this with Matt Hewitt this morning, because, you know, it changes after every tournament now, so you you can never be 100% sure, but uh, he has confirmed it's the first time he's been in there. And, you know, I think he's only the sixth Asian player ever to get into the top 16. Because I thought of Watana, Fu, Ding, Yan Bing Tao and Liang Wenbo. Um, so he, he would be the sixth then, unless I missed someone out there. When was Watana last in? It must be 20 years or more. Yeah, I, I think it was 99. There were a few of... There were a few guys who dropped out at the end of the 99 championship. Nigel Bond, I think, was one. I think Watanau was another. Um, and also, have we ever had three Asians in the top 16 at the same time before? Well, I guess Ding, Ding Fu and Liang could be the only three, couldn't they? So if they were in yeah, together... That, that, yeah, actually, that may well. There may have been a brief crossover period there. But also, um, j- just another thing to, to raise that I was surprised nobody mentioned it along the way you think about it, I think it was two weeks ago, may have been last week, but I don't think so. I think it was the week before last, was supposed to be the week of the Saudi Arabia tournament <laughs> with the £500,000 first prize. I mean, obviously, there's been no mention of that because it's completely impossible at the moment. And you would certainly hope that tournament will end up uh, being played next season. But uh, it's funny to think there was so much talk about that last December and what a huge event it was going to be. And then the week just passed by largely unnoticed. So uh, I felt uh, that was worthy of a mention as well. Definitely. Well, uh, we will uh, hopefully have that tournament next season. I mean, as I said, look, we can't, we don't know. We're not soothsayers. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, I think, I mean, Barry, of course, and we wish Barry the best, he got the coronavirus. Um, and there's no one worse to be self-isolating because, you know, he can't just sit quietly, but probably cooking up all sorts of ideas. But one thing he did tweet was, I mean, he wants the fans to come back. And you can understand why, because, you know, gate revenue has become significant in snooker. And, as I say, I think they're trying to get through this season um, and then we'll see what happens next season. But, you know, unless there's more sponsorship and more game money, then clearly there are challenges for the tour. Uh, but that's a challenge for every sport. And I think some sports are in a far worse position than snooker. Definitely. Um, anyway, on that uh, rather negative note, we will <laughs> we will end. Um, you can email us, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com uh, for any thoughts on what you've heard, any ideas for future editions. We'll return hopefully next week. Sports Social Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.